0: Take a network break. Cool off with our new iced virtual donuts and join us on a ranty voyage down the river of tech news. We're going to talk about a critical Cisco vulnerability, a new managed service from BTE and HPE, the travails of domestic chip manufacturing and more. We're sponsored today by Backbox. Backbox is a multi-vendor network automation platform that lets you automate every device on the network through a single pane of glass. It supports network and security devices from 180 different vendors. So for example, you can execute an OS upgrade across Cisco, Checkpoint, and Palo Alto firewalls with a single click. Get an eval copy and see for yourself at backbox.com slash and Then stay tuned after the news we have a sponsored Tech Bytes episode where we discuss building sovereign clouds with VMware and a VMware partner. A sovereign clouds provide cloud benefits like scale while ensuring that your data resides in a specific country or geography and meets requirements for security and privacy. We're going to talk with this VMware partner how it built a shared sovereign cloud for 14 municipalities. It's an interesting conversation.
1: Yeah, it's not often you get to hear somebody who basically built a cloud. It's it's not a, you know, mega cloud. It's a couple of racks but it allowed 14 quite small institutions to share resources in a cloud-like way and all on the VMware story. And he's talking about how they did that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's interesting.
0: All right. Before we get into the news, we got a couple of FUs or follow-ups. Uh, first, if you noticed last week, uh, we published a, uh, a special bonus uh, network break, and instead of our regular numbering system, we decided to have a little fun and do Roman numerals. And I guess we muffed it a bit. Uh, <laughs> instead of four Cs, it should have been a, a C and a D. Uh, uh, so thanks, Steve Beluca, uh, uh, for not
1: quite. Oh, 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 no. oh, oh. Oh.
0: See, now in Roman
1: numerals, there's two canonical forms. You can do a CD, which is C subtracted from D, which is 100 subtracted from 500. D is 500. C is 100. And you subtract the Uh, two to make 400, and then the XXXVII, right, which is 437. But that is not necessarily regarded as canonical. That's regarded as not necessarily the right way. So the more correct way to write it is CCCC, which is 4, C is 100, 4Cs four is 400, 4 times 100. As far as I understand it, the CD usage is not normative. And therefore, when I tried to put it out there, I realized, did some research on it. I did actually check this. Remember when we were naming it? I remember going through it. And I, doing know, some check. I know you checked it. And yes. it is, yes, CD is Correct. It is a form of usage, but I don't believe it to be the right usage, especially for not a small number like 400. The whole idea here is that I think this, to to give this a networking spin, remember when IPv6 first came out and people were trying to find ways to abbreviate writing 128, you know, writing 128 bits in hexadecimal and you've got, Ah. you know, 20... 20 odd characters and you've got to have and then they had to come up with a whole standard that said this is how you can write the abbreviated form you know if, if you put two colons you can only do that once in the thing it's like that as far as I am aware so okay yes maybe but I disagree I believe it's canonical for <laughs> this particular format for 400 to put CCCC
0: there yeah. <laughs> So that, I mean, it wouldn't be a tech show if there wasn't a disagreement about how to, to number something. So yeah. I think we're, we're totally online with that. Thanks, Thanks but Steve. Thank you, Steve, for reaching out and yep. <laughs> stirring up the pot. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, and then there's another follow-up, I guess, Greg, that you got uh, in reference to uh, Heavy Strategy, which is the podcast you do with uh, Joanna Till Johnson from Nemertes.
1: Yeah, this is an interesting one. This person, he's talking about uh, there are various other podcasts out there in the world where people field unpopular opinions. And each person on the podcast is supposed to explain express an opinion that they think might be unpopular. So here's what I want to do is on network break here. um, If you want to send us your unpopular opinions, go to packetpushes.net slash fu. Just send us your unpopular opinion and say, you know, whatever. And we'll pick it up and try and argue for or against at our random choice, whatever we feel like doing. Maybe Drew will take one side and I'll take the other and send us your unpopular opinion and we'll see if we can dump all over them or maybe we agree with them. Let's uh, take your unpopular opinions, and uh, I'll be talking to Jonah about whether to do those unpopular opinions over there, or whether we should solicit other people to do them. I'm not 100% sure which way to do it, but I think it might work better if uh, we got them in from the audience. where they're the, who, they're the people who've really got the unpopular opinions, not me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all your opinions are popular uh yeah I, I like this idea i like bringing the audience in i like uh stirring things up a bit so yes if you do have an unpopular opinion and you want us to talk about it on network break uh hit us up packetpushes.net slash fu uh you can let us know whether you want your name attached to this unpopular opinion we'll, we'll we're happy to do it anonymously as well uh we will be judicious in what we select uh, for unpopular opinions but uh yeah let, let's try it out and see what happens uh, and as always if you have corrections comments or concerns hit us up packetpushes.net slash fu all right, uh, and the FU is for follow-up, uh, as we always say. Let's dive into the news. Uh, Cisco has announced a security vulnerability in the Nexus 9K data center switches. The vulnerability affects switch is running in ACI mode and could allow, quote, an unauthenticated remote attacker to read or modify intersite encrypted traffic. At present, there are no workarounds, and Cisco has not released a software update to address the vulnerability as of our recording date on Friday, July 7th. Uh, the advisory instead recommends contacting support for alternative options.
1: Yeah, I suspect the question, the issue here is, Drew, is that as I... I understand that ACI is not super popular in the world so there's not that many Cisco customers using ACI and of the customers who do have ACI they're not necessarily using it in application mode and of the customers who are using that in application mode those people who are using this for multi-site cloud sec in that is probably a vanishingly small subset you could be talking just a handful of feature but mm-hmm. the impact is high so while the you know Uh, The risk is low to Cisco. That is, there's not very many customers potentially doing this. And, but if you get caught out, then people can decode your stuff if they can get into the data stream. As best as I can read this, I think it might be a DCI feature, data center interconnect feature. I'm not 100% sure what multi-site cloud sec encryption feature is. I suspect it's IP. And maybe the workaround is to go and enable MacSec. Don't know. But, yeah, the, the challenge here is that Cisco has put so much feature set into the code on the switches, and they, do, they don't they do ever seem to do a whole lot of testing proactively on the firmware, and we often find these types of things turning up, uh, Cisco seems to like, on customers, for a lot of it's user testing, for a lot of it's security testing and so forth. So this might be one of those issues where a customer's done some testing on it and found the issue, and then somehow that's crept out
0: into the wild before they'd told Cisco about it. So we'll see. I guess the flaw has to do with the implementation of the ciphers used by the CloudSec encryption feature on the switches. Uh, And yes, I presume you're correct in that there's not a lot of people running ACI full mode, and then probably even a smaller number of people using the CloudSec encryption feature uh, in ACI mode. So that's probably why Cisco isn't rolling out a software patch. Typically, with a security vulnerability like this, they would want to address Mm. it right away. Uh, But yeah, I guess it's probably a smaller number. But again, high impact if you are one of those folks. So Mm -hmm. call Cisco and, and get on a conversation. Yep. Uh, Links in the show notes if you want to uh, read up on it. We'll move on. HPE, Aruba Networking, and British Telecom have announced a new managed service in which BT will manage customers wired and wireless LANs. The service includes a LAN audit, any LAN upgrades that might be needed, and a centralized dashboard for reporting and analytics. And uh, Greg, I guess you've got some strong feelings about uh, telcos (laughs) and managed services. Well, you know I have, because I've said it often enough
1: over the years here, and we've been doing this for quite a long time now. And I think that the challenge with... Manage telco services—is it you know after many years of bitter failures and being engaged in recovery projects to unbreak everything that the telco touched? I was looking at this and I was sort of fell about laughing at first, and then I thought, hang on, hang on, there's a change going on here. This little voice, and I read it—I read the article a second time around—and the idea that HP Aruba has been building out a SaaS engine called Aruba Central. Which is pitched mm-hmm. as lowering the cost of administration. It's very focused on the operational aspects. So, the idea here is that HP Ruber has an off-prem cloud software platform, and it seems to be very—you know—we've not heard any negative feedback about it. So, there's every reason to believe that it is what it is, what it's pitched as. And if I'm now a service provider manned by managing, you know, where their managed services is manned by low-cost staff because that's the goal. BT tries to sell a service at the same price as high-priced resellers and then staff it with cheap staff and use their brand name to get in there, right? So they'll quite Mm -hmm. often offshore the staffing to Philippines or India or Pakistan or something. And they have very limited training. They have very little oversight in terms of dine control. They don't have much in change review. They have poor discipline around mapping to the specification, all this sort of stuff. But if you've got Aruba Central, in this case, many of the operational traps and failure actions that are normally that would have happened in the past are actually now prevented and less prone to just stupid. So I'm pretty confident that while a telco can still make a mess, they can probably be prevented from the absolute worst. I've seen some shock and stuff with somebody (laughs) who was like a obviously went to a CCNA course and then went out and started practicing on a client's routers and completely blew Uh. the whole configuration of the network. The fact that it was working at all was a miracle. Uh. And, of course, it didn't work when it failed and when things went wrong and it absolutely fell apart. But So if you think about this in the old days, if you wanted to build a managed service like this, you had to get asset management, you had to do configuration backups, you had to do network monitoring, you had to have an asset tool, you had to have a separate team doing contract management. Where's the maintenance? What are all the serial numbers? What happens to all that? But And many outsourcing companies just didn't have those tools. What they used to do is just say, here's a team of four people or six people, and they're going to look after that networking for you, Mr. Customer. And then six months or a year in, there'd be four people, and six months after that there's three. You know, the spreadsheets don't get right. updated, the boxes don't get updated, you know, all that sort of stuff. But if you think about what's happening in here, HPE Aruba has actually got all of that done. When you now get an SDN tooling like Aruba Central, you get the asset management, you get the configuration backup, you get the monitoring, you get the static, you get the asset management, you get the contract monitoring. So, you know, what's the status of all your service contracts and maintenance contracts with HP? Are they paid for? You know, all that type of stuff. And you can see it all. So there is actually a 50-50 chance that a telco might not screw this up. What do you think? Is that viable?
0: I think it actually is viable in that I presume BT is just sort of overlaying, you know, their own interface on top of what would be underneath uh, Aruba uh, Cloud Central or the, the, the cloud-based management platform. Yeah. And presumably uh, all of the cloud, uh, Meraki and so on, are doing yeah. the same thing, trying to make it as easy as possible to manage from the cloud. And so, yeah, a, a service provider should be able to step in and run this without... Too much hassle. Presumably, again, it's yeah. hard to know because, as you say, the, the telcos want to minimize costs, which means minimize staffing.
1: Well, I mean, in the old days, they used to have a silo, so that if you were running an outsourcing or a managed services, you'd have a monitoring team over here, and you'd have a contracts management team here, and you'd have a, you know, the update team here, and then you'd have the customer team here, and they'd all have to, and all these teams. Were, and if you wanted to add a device, you had to go to each one of the teams and say we're adding a new device, and then the monitoring had to be added, and then the contracts, and you know, all that stuff. Whereas now it's all just one app, and so maybe, maybe, and I'll, I, you know, I just can't bring myself to say confidently that a service provider could actually do anything but sell bandwidth. But I think maybe we've actually made these things so that they're, you know, impossible to break in this format. As or long harder as harder to break, harder, harder. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: Our new managed service is harder to screw up. Yeah, that's a, that's the. I mean, from
1: HP's yeah. point of view, this is great. They're relatively small their reach into, you know, to customers is relatively limited after they've been downsizing. Dell and Cisco have got monstrous sales operations, um, and they are much further behind in this model because those organizations are so disparate, they're so big, you know, there's so many different business units moving in different directions and trying to get together and say, you know, all these things that are separate products all should be just one product, and they are really struggling to bring them all together. Like, we don't see, you know, something like Cisco central to just bring all of that together. They've got bits of it, like, you know, they're starting there. You can see it coming out. There's various products that are, but they all, they're all they still competing and it's not clear and, you know, that sort of stuff. And, and big companies just have big problems just getting all the people to do the same thing to help customers because somewhere Bam. in there, there's this person who thinks the right way to help customers is to do this and someone else thinks it's to do this and then they compete with each other. And so... And the other thing big companies struggle to do is to give customers less choices. A big thing about Aruba Central is this is how you do it, and you can't do anything else, right? Same as Meraki, and that's why we're seeing Cisco move to Meraki as well. I think we'll see Meraki be probably Cisco's bulk managed services um, type of thing. When a customer wants to, and if they're smart, they'll start, you know, pitching that to BT and other telcos and see if they can get some revenue. But it certainly cuts the resellers out of the game. Like BT is back in the business of reselling, but. I would just point out that anybody who's done business with BT Outsourcing or any of these telco outsourcing, just remember how miserable it was last
0: time and how horrible it was and probably don't do it. But, you know, maybe the world's changed. Maybe. Uh, Yeah, my take is I'm always curious when people sign on for a managed service from a telco because I've never heard anyone express any uh, love or joy or appreciation of their telco. It's usually a very hostile relationship. So why would you then sign on for a managed service as well? But I think that's balanced against the fact that Uh, corporate executives hate having to have staff, including IT staff, and so anything they can do to trim that number uh, may be worth the pain of working with a a telco-managed service.
1: Yeah, I just, you know, if you're going to do it, I think all of the things that I just said that make it possible for BT to do that for you are also the things that a customer can do for themselves.
0: If exactly. If if, if, if if Aruba Central is really that much easier to then manage your uh, campus network, why do you want to give it to somebody? Unless it's because you feel like mm. IT really isn't uh, critical for us, and we want to cut headcount as much as possible. So we'll just write a check to BT instead, and we're happy being mm. all in on Aruba gear, including you know the switches and the APs.
1: Yeah, the tension I've always found is it. That- Your outsourcer always wants to do nothing because that's the cheapest possible outcome for them. (laughs) And the customer always (laughs) wants to be doing something. And that's the fundamental tension that you get, right? And so if you want to be making small changes or slight changes to improve the service or change, you know, you want to add a second guest land for something or you want some sort of, you know, unusual type of transition. That's something that you need to be doing because every time you turn around and talk to the outsourcer, they're going to charge you money or argue that it's not in the contract or the agreed terms or, you know, oh, we don't have anybody available to do that until four weeks away or something. My general belief is that everything I said about, you know, being viable managed services also means that you should be doing it in-house and doing it yourself.
0: And (laughs) I I, I would probably (laughs) tend towards in-house as a general role. Yes, we here. see. All right, link in the show notes. If you want to read up, we'll move on. Uh, Broadcom says it's going to invest money to help develop the semiconductor industry in Spain. The amount could be as much as $1 billion. This is according to a Reuters article, but Broadcom has not specified the total investment. Uh, the Spanish government's allocated 12 billion euros to subsidize a semiconductor ecosystem in the country. Uh, Reuters says the project will include, quote, the construction of large-scale back-end semiconductor facilities in Spain. Uh, Broadcom made this announcement via a tweet. I couldn't find any official press release or blog on the company's website. Uh, so yeah, it's just sort of like a, a, a tweeted commitment and you can take that forever, whatever it's worth.
1: <laughs> I followed up on a number of different press articles on this and one of them said the project in which Broadcom involved could be worth $1 billion, the Spanish economy ministry said in an emailed statement. Broadcom did not say how much it would invest. This says a very vague statement like, oh, we're going to spend money in Spain in a tweet. Casual. This really feels like somebody jumped the gun here. This is not an official announcement, and quite why
0: everybody got excited about this, I don't quite understand. Um, because most, I, I think, because it ties into the broader theory of uh, the U.S. and the EU trying to rehome uh, chip production uh, yeah. because of uh, the 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 supply chain shortages and the not wanting to have to rely yeah.
1: on. Well, if you recall, back in November 2022, we talked about Cisco announced that it was planning to open a new chip design center in Barcelona. But mm-hmm. again, Cisco didn't announce any money, didn't announce any details around the headcount. It was more of a, oh, we're going to start designing chips in Barcelona. You know, does that mean that you're going to hire a couple of chip designers and they happen to be in
0: Spain working from home? Put them in a WeWork in Barcelona and yeah. call, it a, call it a day. Yeah,
1: yeah. I don't know. It doesn't. There's not a lot of detail here, whereas if you look at the announcement this week with Intel in Germany, you know, announcing that it's going to, it's got twelve billion dollars from twelve billion euro from the EU, from the German government, and it's got another one going on, I think in Italy, and it's got X number. Of, they are very much fleshed out. There's very different, very much a, a set of terms and conditions around this. Um, this feels like a furphy, and I don't think Broadcom really wants to be there, but it's going to make mileage out of this. So I, I think this is a the nothing burger.
0: We will see. Uh, quick break to tell you about our sponsor backbox backbox is a network automation platform supports network and security devices from over 180 vendors it's got thousands of pre-built automations and a scripting free way to build new ones with backbox any task could be performed manually on any device on the network regardless of vendor and it can be automated intelligent conditional automation streamlined tasks that once took several steps to perform for example you can verify available storage space on devices before beginning os upgrades it's built from the ground up as a multi-tenant solution it's got role-based administration and a rest api Backbox is a powerful, scalable network automation solution. And with their award-winning customer support, you're never on your own. So see why businesses and service providers worldwide trust Backbox to automate critical tasks on over 100,000 networks. You can get a free evaluation copy of the software. Just go to backbox.com slash That's backbox.com slash And we thank them for being a sponsor. Uh, Sticking with the onshoring of chip manufacturing, the Taiwanese chipmaker TSMC has raised some hackles in the U.S. by bringing in Taiwanese workers to help with the construction of new chip fabrication plants in the U.S. state of Arizona. Uh, TSMC is angling to get billions of dollars in incentives and tax breaks from the U.S. government for building uh, the two chip fab plants in Arizona. So uh, U.S. labor unions and others have complained about TSMC importing workers. Uh, For its part, TMC says the uh, the Taiwanese workers aren't displacing the 12,000 U.S. workers already here and that it needs specialized expertise to build these plants that uh, US workers don't have.
1: Yeah, this is obviously a very tough situation. TSMC's caught between politics, geopolitics, and local <laughs> yeah. conditions on the ground. <laughs> um, I think the first thing to realize is that TM- TSMC doesn't really want to be in the USA, but the, re- the US federal government has applied pressure to make this happen, and and also enticements and rewards, or bribes, whatever you want to call it. And what I also understand is that many TSMC employees are, very, are not happy to be sent to the USA, and they do not regard Arizona as a desirable place to live. <coughs> apparently this location is in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing that's convenient for them. They're out of their culture. They struggle with the language. It's hot and miserable. Um, And you've also got to remember that uh, TSMC, when they build a factory, they work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's a a full-on rotating shift. And Mm -hmm. the American unions are less than pleased that this type of work schedule is what's expected. And they're making all sorts of noises and stuff. But I've been tracking this for a while. This isn't something that's just happened. It just seems to have blown up in the mainstream media. But TSMC said they will have to bring people out of Taiwan to do this because it is specialist skills and people don't have the specialist skills that you need to build these sorts of plants and they will bring engineers out. Now, keep in mind, TSMC is actually, as an employer, feeds from multiple university campuses in Taiwan, all Uh these graduates coming out and I think. A vast, a very large number of them are actually masters level equivalent, so they don't just get degrees in ASICs and whatever. They actually come out with masters in chip fabrication and then go straight into working for TSMC. And mm. there's just not that many of them in the US, and the ones that are there aren't don't want to go to Arizona. Um, so you know, what do you do? And then there's you know there's there's just not the skills that you need, so you bring them from Taiwan. And I I think also the unions had a beat up here. Drew, like there's uh, twelve thousand workers involved here, I believe, as many as twelve thousand yes. workers, and we're talking mm-hmm. about a few hundred coming out from Taiwan. <laughs> it does feel, right. you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the articles I read said that TSMC is bringing in migrant workers uh, to build these plants, which makes it sound like you know they're trying mm. to import cheap labor to undercut American workers. When in fact, I think what they're doing is bringing in. Highly trained, very specialized engineers to build these—you uh, know—very complex fabrication plants. We're not talking about mm. putting up a hotel or putting up a mall. Uh You no. know, these are very complex uh, uh, factories, and so you—you you do need that expertise. And it's not about like we're trying to undercut uh, American workers. That these are very special. <laughs> I can see TM- <laughs> TSMC's point here. Yeah, but yeah. We 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 have specialists. We have to. We just have to bring them in for this. Yeah,
1: I can't remember the exact fabrication. Node size that they're actually bringing in, but they're bringing in plants that have been decommissioned somewhere else. Uh, I'm not sure if it was Taiwan, it may be China, it may be Japan, and then setting them up in Arizona, and and that basic proposal is that it would then kickstart the industry around chip fabrication. So they'd use older equipment and mm. start, you know, encouraging universities to churn out graduates that could then, you know, come and get jobs with the organisation and so forth. So these people have probably been working on this fab nodes. You know, these set of machines and they're relocating them from somewhere to here, entirely reasonable to bring those engineers over, especially if it's a couple of hundred, right, to help with the deployment of those machines in, you know, it'll take them six months to just tune those machines. So once the, fa- the factory's finished and the machines are all on site, it will take six months to tune out the entire plant minimum of just running test productions until they get all of the bugs ironed out of the equipment. It's really, really specialised. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. I think I I did read that one of the plants, uh, the one that's going to come online later, is uh, intended to be a a three nanometer production plant, which Mm. I think is close to top of the line, if not top of the line.
1: Yes. So once these ones are in and it starts the process of, you know, building a workforce and building a skill set, there will be sequential investments. Uh, TSMC has announced a $14 billion investment cycle into the Arizona site, but that remains to be seen if that plays out. If they can't get the workers if and if they can't find the skills or the universities don't step up, and there was money in the budget to do that, we'll see what happens after that. But uh, Yeah.
0: Yeah, so these are the challenges of of, of onshoring chip production domestically. Uh, so I expect more kerfuffles like this. And the building union guy
1: was a bit off the bit off the wall and doing the usual. Like a lot of those union people. I mean, I'm all for unions and stuff, really. But some of those union reps just don't really know how to act
0: like adults. Sometimes I must say. That could be an unpopular opinion. We'll, we'll see what happens. <laughs> All right, links in the show notes if you want to read up on it. Uh, Nokia has announced it has achieved a sustained average downlink speed of more than two gigabits per second using millimeter wave spectrum and 5G fixed wireless access over a distance of about 11 kilometers or nearly seven miles. Uh, the company achieved this milestone at a test site in Finland. Nokia says it's demonstrating the potential for fixed wireless access to provide connectivity in remote areas and areas underserved by wired access.
1: Yeah, so millimeter wave means you're up around the 24 gigahertz in this context. So that is right up in a spectrum that nobody, is using. And the great thing about this spectrum is you've got this potential for massive bandwidth throughput at that sort of clock rate, but the propagation capabilities of that signal are very, very poor. And so what we're basically seeing here is that people are applying what roughly amounts to magic to send an unlikely amount of data over a very unlikely or an improbable distance. And if they're able to do that, then that could really change the way we look at broadband. Um, because the, the way that this works is they've also announced that they're releasing directional antennas and a, and a receiver here for consumer broadband. And the idea mm-hmm. would be is that you'd be able to put in a, a box inside your house somewhere and then run out to an external antenna, which is then pointed towards, uh, or may be omnidirectional, it may actually be directional, it's not 100% clear, but they're talking in, the, in another press release, there's a link here, uh, a directional antenna design with up to 18 dBi gain. directional antennas are fine as long as the towers are working. But if you do need to cover an area, sometimes in rural areas, just having access to one tower is better than no tower, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got to keep your context right. What I think is pretty well here is I think we're more likely to see this used at 5G pops. So if you've got to put a 5G pop on top of a hill next to a motorway, which is, you know, 20 miles from the nearest town, you don't want to trench it up and run a fiber out there. We've seen a lot of push on with various companies uh, on the over on heavy wireless talking about using uh, wireless to do point-to-point for 5G pops. This feels like it's in that market. So this fixed wireless access. Imagine you're building a, a 5G pop. You put up a highly directional antenna that's using this, um, you know, millimeter wave for backhaul and you can pull... You know, in this case, two gigabits per second, that's pretty good. That's pretty
0: good. Yeah, not bad. Mm. Yep. Yeah, there are certainly use cases for point to point wireless, fixed wireless access. Uh-huh. Uh, in fact, uh, Pack Porsches, we did a whole show uh, with a wireless internet service provider uh, that's essentially putting up towers on mountaintops uh, and using long shot wireless to get uh, connectivity across places where they're just never going to pull fiber. So uh, mm. I put the link in the show notes if you want to check it out. It's an interesting
1: episode. Yeah, it's just, I. I however, the track with this is, Convincing normal people to install a fixed wireless access is not easy. You know, right. <laughs> you, installing an external antenna and then pointing it at a particular location is not plugging your broadband router into the into the socket in the wall. It is a different right. thing, and explaining to people why it works, doesn't work, and you know, all that, and troubleshooting it very, very difficult indeed. This would need a really a whole thing going on. So
0: yeah. All right. We're going to wrap up uh, with one more story. It's been 50 years since Bob Metcalf. He was a scientist at Xerox Palo Alto Research Center. Wrote a memo describing a local area bus network that would eventually become the Ethernet standard. And whatever your feelings about Ethernet might might be, I think it's worth noting that Ethernet's persistence in an industry that prides itself on changes is remarkable. Uh, We have a link in the show notes uh, of an article from Jeff Houston, uh, who has a detailed post about the history of the standard, uh, including its predecessor, AlohaNet, which was developed at the University of Hawaii in, in, in in the 1960s. So yeah, <laughs> Ethernet's getting gray. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when people post the history of
1: Ethernet because everybody's got a pre-Ethernet history story. Have you noticed how many there uh-huh. are? There's lots of There are of them. quite a few. There's quite a few. Yep. So it's always good to hear Jeff Houston talk about his predecessor, AlohaNet. There was many others, as I remember. It. But uh, I am not one of the people that celebrates Ethernet. I think that um, Ethernet is basically a turd rolled in glitter. Um, And if you've ever spent any time looking at other layer two technologies, you'll probably realize that Ethernet is the dumbest and least capable solution that we could ever have chosen. And in fact, it's so bad that we ended up choosing TCP IP to make Ethernet workable. We used the original idea behind Ethernet was that we would have large Ethernet networks inside a building. You would never need to have a router inside a building, but we've so messed it up the Ethernet standard, that that we had to put TCP IP in to make that scale because Ethernet is so dumb and so bad. The whole thing about the Ethernet layer 2 format is it's so dumb, the header is so minimal that it couldn't be anything but awful. Like all of the things that you want, like error checking and loop detection, are not done in the header, which is the natural place to do it. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So, no, I'm not a fan but that said, so, so you're not sending a gift. to am not to Ethernet, a gift. Uh, for, I think for its fiftieth, yeah. I think everybody should go and get a kicking for being stupid to pick it up. <laughs> I mean,
0: uh, the, so, the real- <laughs> if you get access to a time machine, this is what you're using it for—to go back in time and maybe rip up that memo. So
1: look, the real Ethernet is not the layer two, you know, format—not the, the, you know, that header, the Ethernet header. That's that's nothing. The real Ethernet is the constantly changing, ever evolving ever different, ever incompatible layer one. And it, at, at mm-hmm. most, you might want to talk about the sub-layer. We used to have, layer two was actually in two layers. It used to be there was a sub-layer. Mm-hmm. And, a, and Anyway, but the point is that every time we do, so 10 meg is different from 100 meg, is different from one gig, is different from 10 gig. And that's the part that keeps evolving. The frame that goes over the top of it is just the the dumbest and least framing that we could do. And nobody really wanted to change it because it didn't really matter Because we used IP to solve what is the stupid part of Ethernet, and so for me, there's just nothing to celebrate. Because except perhaps how dumb businesses are for to choose the cheapest and worst solution to their technology problems, and then pay billions of dollars to fix the weaknesses of Ethernet. You know the loop, the spanning tree, the failures, the stupid—you know—all that stuff is gone. And then anybody who was involved with Ethernet, always runs around going like, "Oh, I got credit for doing Ethernet." All they merely did was just move the problems up to layer three, layer four, or even up to the application stack, or down to the physical layer, down in layer one, and then exploiting it ruthlessly. So people like Bob Metcalf, who set up companies off the back of it, managed to exploit their Ethernet, but they didn't do anything except to find the least possible, the least competent layer 2 format, and the only way that you could solve the phi layer at the time, and then everything after that has got nothing to do with it since. So no, I'm I'm not a huge fan.
0: I don't, there, there may be some token ring fans out there throwing their fist in the air and ready to, to back you or something. I don't FIDI
1: know. FIDI and ArcNet. Uh, not token FIDI ring. And oh, those, right. those are
0: your choices? Those are my choices. <laughs> I'll
1: go with ArcNet for certain types of implementations. I liked ArcNet because uh-huh. it could do a star and a bus. So you, mm-hmm. And okay. more importantly, you could go star, bus, star, bus, or bus, star, star, the whole thing, right? You didn't stuck with this stupid Ethernet bus and then now it's a star. Everything goes back to the thing that's stupid. And then FIDI for its sheer stability and reliability. But Token Ring was less fun because it didn't automatically wrap until much later in its development cycle, whereas FIDI would auto-wrap and ArcNet was just like, you do want to plug it in? Just go and run a cable. Do you want copper? Do you want coax? You just, just connect it. It'll all work itself out. It was awesome. Mm. <laughs>
0: Well, no happy birthday from Greg for, for uh, <laughs> Ethernet's 50. No. <laughs> all, right, all right, that wraps up the news. Uh, stay tuned for our Tech Bytes episode. We're going to talk about building sovereign clouds uh, with a VMware partner that's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes
1: podcast, we welcome back sponsor VMware, and we're talking about sovereign cloud. It was Francisco Romero from Teatro Every... Is joining us to talk about being one of the first VMware partners to offer major sovereign cloud solutions and works with clients in the Nordics. He's actually got stories from the real world about what it's like to implement a sovereign crowd in the modern era. Let's kick off by introducing Francisco. Francisco, first, let me tell me a little bit about yourself and then how Teatro Every is offering companies, you know, offering customers a solution. And then we're going to ask you about what is sovereign cloud? What does that actually mean in 2023?
2: Well, first of all, thanks a lot for having me here today. Uh, yeah, my name is Paco Romero, Francisco Romero. I work in Tieto every. My role is the the lead service owner for the sovereign cloud offering we offer to our customers here in the Nordics. It's our our region, and here at Tieto every, uh, especially tech services, we have uh, a mission and vision of helping our customers to unleash digital value for mm. the organizations. Right. So we we feel to be a part of the Nordic fabric of the society. By powering the digitalization in all levels, and uh, definitely we we have a uh, kind of uh, all the services uh, in regards of digital uh, transformation, right. and uh, means that we can be very very uh, good one stop shop for the customers.
1: So I'm going to pick up on that last thing because some of the things you said at the front there are a bit more like businessy, salesy type speak, and they're sort of subject to the eye behind beholder. But you said you're providing a solution for customers. Now you're talking about sovereign cloud. And mm-hmm. when we were doing the prep for this, one of the things that I was really impressed about was that you were working with a specific customer, a, a metro uh, local government, like a metro, a metro government type thing, mm-hmm. and you were able yeah. mm-hmm. to compress their infrastructure. And you talked about shrinking multiple racks to just a couple of racks. Talk about that, because yeah, that's, that's super interesting. It's, you know?
2: it's, it's a very, very common problem when you go to a um, public sector like the municipalities, It's a very common thing, especially in the Nordics, where you have to realize Nordics Nordics geography is huge, but very scarce population. So it means that you have lots of places, very scattered, and uh, things tend to scatter a lot, meaning that uh, you end up having a very, very dispersed infrastructure in many places unless somebody decides, okay, now we want to concentrate everything in one place. So that's what happened in this, because they have like 14 different... So it's sort of that historical
1: sprawl, each each zone yeah. or each area yeah. did its own thing.
2: Everybody, that's right. Servers
1: servers in a cupboard, yes. services in thing. And you were able to come along and, and identify all of those and then compress the whole lot down into what, one or two racks?
2: Yeah, yeah I mean, it, first of all was, you know, these 14 different groups of people decided to join forces. So that's that's where it starts. They say, hey, this is not doesn't make sense. We need a partner to help us to improve things. Hmm. And that's where we came in. They wanted somebody to to come and help them to consolidate stuff, be more efficient, be more cloud. And we were able to compress everything they had in their 14 different places, which at least means yeah. that everybody had a rack, into racks, which is what we have for hosting all the infrastructure. Right. There, so.
1: Now, yeah. you provided the whole solution here. This isn't just about VMs and, and closing them together. You also bound in some cybersecurity and some privacy. What does that, like, if you've got, I'm thinking, 14 sites and you've got stuff, just simple things like backups are spread out all over the place. And the attack surface, how did you come at for, that as a reseller?
2: It's a, you know, we had a a very strong uh, vision of what we wanted to do based on our conversation and our project with VMware, right? So we had this is the blueprint we want to take to our customers. This is the cloud we want to take to our customers with all the security on, meaning that we combine the Tieto, the, the VMware security. Mm. With, uh, uh, with the Tieto every way of doing things and mm. package as a service. So when we combine these two things, a fantastic technology with our know-how on how to deliver secure services. Right. We have been doing that for years. That can work with a very good combination that delivers modern services with security uh, embedded by design.
1: So that's how you start to talk about it being a sovereign cloud. You're not just yeah. offering VMs as a service or you know storage as a service or something. No. You're actually taking it further.
2: Everybody can do that. You can. Anybody can can take, download the VMware software, put it in your computer, and you have VMs, right? You have a virtualized platform. But but if you want to do that with with the alignment to the requirements of a sovereign cloud, which for example you can find in in VMware's definitions of what is sovereign cloud, mm. that requires much more work because you need to put the people, location, the access controls the vulnerability management in place your yep. encryption mm-hmm. everything needs to be aligned to fulfill those so that requires lots of expertise and competence that you just need to have right uh, a big organization for that so
1: just explain to me let's just for the people who haven't heard of sovereign cloud because you might be in a country where all clouds are in your country and you might not ever think about this yep. but sovereign cloud is about keeping the data close by right yeah the,
2: the way we we think about sovereign cloud is, okay it's, it's the two things. It's cloud first, and it's sovereign. So each one has its own its own specific meaning. Mm-hmm. Like cloud means that you know the customers. In my experience, the customers have realized that cloud is fantastic, and they will never give out give up on cloud. They yeah. want cloud. There is no going back. Everybody needs cloud. Everybody wants cloud. If it's not cloud, they will not buy it. Right. But they need it from certain. Uh, in many of in many in many cases, they need it from certain. Terms and conditions which the public cloud cannot provide yes. because of their the their kind of providers right. they are. So that's what we came in. We have something that is a cloud, but it delivers on certain requirements that public cloud cannot. That's so cloud.
1: some of it is off-prem, some of it's hosted in a you know a, a brand name cloud somewhere out yeah. there, and the rest of it's hosted on-premise, but the whole thing is a cloud or a sovereign cloud because you can choose how you want it to be. You're not stuck with Go, vendor A or vendor B services. You've got much more flexibility
2: correct because exactly you 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 want the flexibility of the cloud but you you want it in certain location with certain terms and conditions and, and that is you know it's uh, it's not the model of public cloud hyperscalers they don't work that way they have what they they have what they have they have where they have it hmm. but if you want to have a data gravity of things and hmm. take the cloud to where the data is, you need something else. You need something that complements that. That's, for example, the tier to every sovereign cloud.
1: Yeah, because I've done work with municipalities and they have things like sewage treatment plants and they oh. have software on-premise, right, which yeah. runs the sewage treatment, does all, you know, monitors the water, the, the, you know all of those types of things, right? Those are not Correct. things that are off-prem clouds. They're not hosted on a, as a SaaS or something. They're very much something that needs to be local and managed carefully.
2: Yeah, just to give you one example, like the hospitals, mm. the hospitals and the and the patients' data. I mean, there is so much confidentiality and so much sensitivity on that data. Mm. And you need to have the data available so fast because we're we are talking about the doctors having to make decisions on real time. Mm-hmm. What do we do with this guy? Mm-hmm. So you need that data very easily. It cannot fail. So you typically need it in a different place than public cloud for mm-hmm. many reasons privacy, uh, speed of access, reliability, et cetera, et cetera. So that's where the sovereign cloud solution comes in because it delivers on those things that complements other ways that public cloud cannot do.
1: Now I've been in the reseller game. I was in, worked for a reseller for 10, maybe 15 years, and it was a very difficult, very challenging environment. And, you, you, there's you, there's the customer, there's the technology, you're partnered with VMware, you've got all these different stakeholders. How hard is that to do it? And how how much of that struggle were you able to solve easily? Like in the old days, we used to put it together with vendor A, B, C, you know, multi-vendor solutions, servers, routers, switch, you know, all of that. But today it seems to me like it would be much less of a struggle in, in that sense. You need to, I mean, I think that the
2: main the main thing is to have a very clear um understanding both ways of what you are trying to do Mm. in my experience there is the risk that you 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 assume a lot on each other side and then you don't end up in concrete results because you are all the time guessing Mm. but in in my experience when we get a super good traction with VMware when we set up together say okay this is the kind of service we want to do Mm. so this is the kind of service we need your technology so you help the technology piece with Mm. your competence with your know-how on how this technology works we do the service part so when we align on those kind of uh, roles and responsibilities, everything mm. works fantastic. But you need to have that very clear. I mean, it cannot be just well, let's do something together. That will never work.
1: But it's very different today. Like doing that today seems to mean like you've got VMware providing you a way to manage AWS and Azure or GCP, if that's whatever, you know, or yes. even, you know, some other types of off-prem cloud. And then you've got VMware providing you with a manageable interface for all of the stuff that you're building in those racks that we talked about, right? So you've got yep. ESX hypervisors, you've got NSX, you've got the vSAN, you've got the backup and the data recovery and all that sort of stuff. It seems to me that that's a much more practical thing like for a reseller to be able to do now. Ten years ago, to be able to do all of those things would have been really difficult, but now it's something you can do. Uh,
2: yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, when you think about uh, um, VMware is listening really hard and very, very intently to mm-hmm. providers like us. So you realize that when you read, when you see VMware's roadmap, when you see the things they are doing around the Tanzu, the multi-cloud, the the providers ecosystem, you realize they are really thinking about that, and it's mm-hmm. exactly what you say. It goes in the way of making our life easier, mm-hmm. and it does because you re, Okay, when I think about my roadmap, essentially, I think uh, what is VMware's. Uh, R&D roadmap. Yeah, yeah. It's very easy for me because I pick up on that and I pick and choose what I think is make more sense for my customers. But mm. it's it's a kind of a, a kind of already a foundation there laid down for me which makes my life much easier as a yeah, provider. Yeah.
1: Because you're the product manager, you're actually designing these solutions exactly. and, and hoping to carry them forward to other clients, right? And find exactly. new opportunities. Exactly. And to but it's just what strikes me here is that Teatro Every would not have been able to put together all of these products into a solution.
2: Oh, no, absolutely. Historically, no. this is
1: a new business that you've put together here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm.
2: Totally. I mean, you think about the, the original visualization software. Well, that was just one piece of software more mm. among many others. And you had to do lots of work to put it together. Mm. The latest generation from VMware is a full stack mm. Mm. of services. It's a full stack, which is fully integrated with fully integrated lifecycle management with the SDDC lifecycle manager and all those things in the Big Lab Foundation ecosystem, right? Mm. So. That makes our life way easier. We just need to figure out how we integrate that with our security uh, and with our delivery model. But other than that, the technology stack is kind of directly from the VMware factory.
1: And that just simplifies it. That means that to me, oh, absolutely. It, right, you imagine 10 years ago, you would have been dealing with 15 to 20 vendors to try and stitch yeah. the something out of this. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, I mean, you think about the, the traditional 3 tier architecture of, of uh, infrastructure solutions, right? You just mm-hmm. at least three, four, five different vendors and you had to do a lot of heavy lifting to mm-hmm. put them together today. Is way less on the core. It's more about the the service. How do you package the service and conceptualize the service? But that makes sense because that's our role. We are service integrator. We are not technology developers.
1: So what it strikes me about that then is that that service means that you're going to have a long-term business going on because you're providing, you're focused on just making what the customer wants instead of trying to wrestle the horses underneath that, you know, or or wrangle the, you know, get the servers to work with this and the, and the, the storage, you know, all that sort of stuff.
2: Exactly. I mean, I know I don't have to worry about technology piece because I know VMware will fix that for me, hmm. you know, and I know if something doesn't work today, I talk to VMware and, you know, it might take a bit longer, but you know, sooner or later, I know that will be resolved because they are listening. Hmm. Then I can concentrate on making sure that I deliver what makes sense for the customers in my market segment, etc. But I, I don't need to worry too much about resolving the technology piece because VMware does it for me.
1: Right. And because you're bringing together 14, I think it was 14 municipalities. 14 was single,
2: in the particular country. Hmm?
1: That means that you can probably do a lot of sharing of resources yourself. So if we just talk about Absolutely. the on-premise, prem you've now got 14 relatively small organizations stitching together into one. That gives you scale and burst capabilities as well. This is something like each one of those wouldn't have been able to burst without going to buy a new server and a new license and a new... But by welding them together, this is no. actually a full-on cloud capability. Burst storage is there, extra server capacity, so much simpler to get new things done.
2: Exactly. I mean, for them, it's given a, a digital platform, a more than digital platform where they can build. Once again, they don't have to worry about technology. Mm. Once again, we, we kind of resolve the technology piece. I love for when you say they don't fashion. have to worry about technology. Of course they do, right? But... It's, well, yeah, but no, in, a, in, a, in a different manner, you know. Kind of, the, the <laughs>
1: you're not,
2: what, what you're saying
0: is you're
1: not expecting it to be a problem, right? When we say we don't have to no, worry. It,
2: correct. It means that, you yeah. know, it's, you, you outsource that problem. And of mm-hmm. course, you, you need to make sure that your outsource partner, in this case, Tieto Every with VMware, mm-hmm. will deliver and so on. But but it's an entirely different thing to having to plan on how to resolve the problem yourself and yeah. building your organization to be able to cater for that problem. Yeah. It it's an entirely different uh, design of your organization. You can re- you can you can focus on building the organization for your core business mm. and you don't have to invest in having those things which are not your core business because you can rely that people like Tieto Every, mm. in this case with the help of VMware, can help yeah. resolve yeah. those things.
1: The thing that strikes me about this is this is something that um, just wouldn't have been possible some time ago. A partner providing a full turnkey cloud-like solution, the scalability, the flexibility, multi-tenanted with 14 separate customers all coming together to work on a shared platform, as well as integrating the off-prem capability. So the potential for off-prem is there if you want it. You know, if you want to run yes. something that's from a third-party, you know, OEM cloud, but still managed in the same way. That's all there. Mm-hmm. But Teatro every is not this huge reseller with thousands of, of employees, and you know teams of experts everywhere. You're a modestly sized reseller being successful in your special area, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. And and um, when when you think about these relationship with these uh, municipalities, what we see is that now when we have set the foundation. Mm. I mean, now when we have established the trust from their from their side. Mm we can scale much more services. And this is what we are trying to do. We are Mm -hmm. trying to, you know, promote there. Okay, now you have the foundation. What about containers? What about modern application development? What about uh, object storage? What about, uh, you know, compliance as a service? What about AI? If you want to use an AI
1: LLM for you know. Exactly. You're
2: not going to deploy that locally,
1: but you can go and tap into an early stage, you know, something.
2: Precisely. You have the, you know, the core is there. Now, what else do you want to do? How else can we help you? to develop yep. your digitalization journey.
1: Well, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for today. Thanks so much to VMware for sponsoring today. And thanks so much to Becca Romano for coming on today and talking about what Tietro Avery is doing. It's quite unique, this idea of bringing in 14 local government departments to share a platform and then think about how hard that would have been 10, 20 years ago compared to what you can do today when VMware puts it all together for you. It's a single, almost a single supply solution. You can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts on our community blog at packetpushes.net. Follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushes. Hear us on Spotify, rate us on your Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much technology would never be enough.